We're going to do what we do each week now. We'll look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, if you would turn today as we start into this uh, new series called At Its Core to Psalm 19. Book of Psalms, if you're not familiar with the Bible, pretty much right in the center. And if you find Psalm 19, when you found that, if you'd stand together with me and we'll read through this passage together, if you're able. Psalm 19. David writes this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man runs his course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules or just decrees of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. The words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is God's word. may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly and then we'll dive into this amazing psalm together. Spirit of God, come now and illumine the preaching of your word. Uh, As I declare what you've shown to me this week, I pray that you would open hearts and minds and ears uh, to what you want to accomplish through your word in each of our lives today. Um, I believe you have a purpose that you want to accomplish, that it is not without reason that you send it out, and that it will not return to you void. Accomplish the purpose for which you've sent it out, God, and in each one who's gathered either here or online today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, it's not unusual. Um, in a city like Vancouver or any major city really to uh, get up at a kind of higher vantage point, look out over the skyline, uh, the horizon of the city and see numerous cranes set up all around the city working on various different building projects, apartments, high rises, whatever it is, right? Have you seen this as you drive around the city? Uh, I see it everywhere. But whatever structure ends up being built, In the end, what's common to each one of those building projects is that at their core, they are all built on foundations, sometimes hundreds of feet deep, foundations that then support and stabilize everything else that's built on top of it, which is sort of funny when you think about it because the the foundation, it's like this vital thing. It's, It's holding up everything. It's holding up the entire building, everyone who ever goes in the building, and yet what you see is the building, right? Not the foundation. The building is the part you see, and yet every building has one, and without a foundation, there is no building, no matter how impressive, 
that has any hope of remaining. Well, maybe you never stopped to think about it before, or maybe you have. But the fact is, is that organizations, even spiritual organizations like a church, are actually very similar to that. They have people, they're, they're made up of people who gather around a common purpose, they, they perform activities, they often gather in structures like this. Those are the parts you can see. And yet what's underneath all those visible parts are they're, they're, they're built on certain foundations, certain core principles or values that determine both who that organization is, their identity, and what they do, their, their activity. Well, we began a process as a leadership board uh, over two years ago now to revamp, to revise, to update our core values, our, our foundations as a church, which might sound like the most uh, boring endeavor ever. It might sound um, like a gigantic waste of time, particularly if you think to yourself, um, don't we already have those? Uh, we've got those right there on that poster at the back. We used to have them up on this banner here, everyone, everyone a minister, everyone on mission, everyday mission, you know, on and on. We, we had these already, so why would you give time to that? Great, great question. And the answer is, yeah, we do. We do have those. <clears throat> the, the problem, um, as I came to discover through uh, reading, study, uh, just continuing to grow on my own understanding of leadership and leadership principles, was that what a former pastor of ours, uh, Pastor Kyle and I, developed over six years ago now, were actually... <clears throat> Yeah, actually not core values, um, but aspirational values. Some of you, if you've studied this stuff, you'll already know the difference between these things. Uh, aspirational in the sense of they were a statements of what we hoped would be true of the church, but not necessarily what is presently core to our identity and how we operate as a church. That's kind of the main difference between those things. So that was part of the endeavor. We need to revise this. What is core to our identity and how we want to operate as a church? And I don't know, I see some of you nodding. Maybe there's a handful of you in here who, who kind of like this stuff and kind of geek out on it like I do. But my guess is that the majority of you, you know, if you're even able to stifle your yawns as I present this, are thinking to yourself, like, cool, I mean, but so what? Like, what's the big deal? And, and, and isn't that kind of stuff like core values and vision? Isn't that kind of like business corporate stuff? Um, that, that they care about, shouldn't we, where is it? We're a church. Shouldn't we care about the gospel and, and discipleship and, and reaching our city for Jesus? And, and, and my response would be, yeah, absolutely we should. And, and hopefully what you already know is that we do. Actually, we, we do focus on those things and we do care about those things. But what I'd also want to encourage you to remember is, like if that's what you're thinking right now, that every organization actually has values like this, that, that, that shape its identity and its activity. Every organization, even a family as an organization, has, has values that shape its identity and how they operate, whether they're stated or written down anywhere or not. Every organization has them. Which means the question ultimately at the end of the day really is, do you know what values are shaping your identity and the choices you make every day? Do you actually know what they are? Or are you just simply living out every day, shaped and directed by forces you're not even aware of? And that may be values you wouldn't even want to be shaped by. Because you are being shaped by them. Do you know what they are? Which hopefully that, that highlights for you the value of an exercise like this. Why it's important to have clarity in a process like this. We've actually even 
in my own home. My wife and I, we sat down to try to do this same process as a family, to try to figure out what are the values that shape our home and how do they, are they helping us to achieve where we're trying to get? And I'd be glad to share those resources with anyone who wants to go through that process yourself. But if the, as the saying goes, if, if what you value determines what you do, then it's of the utmost importance that we clearly understand the values and the foundations upon which we're building and being shaped as a church. Particularly as it relates to this vision, which we just unpacked, this new vision for our church in the fall of last year. Uh, if, as I'm sure you could imagine, if our values are not aligned with where we're trying to go, our destination, we have no hope of reaching that destination, which we've stated. Any more than a road trip across Canada has a hope of being successful for a group of friends that values their, their itinerary and keeping on schedule over stopping for gas. Uh, it's a big country. You're probably not going to make it. And so this is what we're going to do. We, we've gone through the process. We, we've developed these things. And now over the next five weeks, we're going to dig in and look specifically and a little bit more deeply at our foundations and values. That is, what it is that's at the core of who we are as a church so that we might all have clarity on what it is we're building on and so that the visible parts of our church, who we are, how we operate, what the things we do, we could make sure that they always remain aligned with our stated destination of where it is we're trying to head and we believe God's going to enable us to reach by His grace. And the very first foundation and value that I trust you, you've seen is core to our church or, or you will see if you're just new and that, that we would say is the core of who we are as a church is the Word of God. This is at the core of who we are. The, the Bible is our very first core value from, from our singing to our small groups from our gospel proclamation to our gospel demonstration, we want everything we do as a church to be shaped and directed and, and for us to come under the authority of this book. Which I know already, even having said that, I know we're in a church right now, but I know even in a church, having said something like that could make a lot of us, or certainly some of us, just kind of hesitate a little bit and just be like, wow, really though, but like, like everything, everything in the book? Because, I mean, you probably know there's like some pretty messed up parts in there. Uh, there's uh, some, some, some ideas in there that are hopelessly outdated and, and even offensive. So really, we, we want to be shaped and directed by everything and come under the authority of everything in this book, to which I respond by saying, yes, everything, but with some caveats, some important caveats, like what? Okay. Well, first of all, first is to say we need to always remember that whenever we approach this book, everyone from the skeptic all the way to the scholar is a student of the word and not a master of it. What that means is that there's nobody who, who looks through the Bible and understands every passage perfectly, understands every meaning and intent and then how to apply that perfectly. to. We're all students of the word. We're not masters of it, which I think is a pretty important thing to remember because Within its 2,000-year history, the church has gotten some things wrong. We've gotten some things wrong, either in our understanding of the word or in our application of it. And so, uh, you know, we have to recognize that reality. As, as students, we're learning. We're growing in our understanding. Additionally, even where we have gotten some things right, we've held that truth at times more with kind of an arrogance and a triumphalism than with the confident humility of Jesus. So how we hold the truth even matters. And, and there's times the church hasn't gotten that right. 
So to remember, first of all, yes, everything in the book, but remembering we're students of this word. We're learning together what it is that God's word and how he's revealing himself. Second caveat is just to remember that the Bible is a book that was written in a particular cultural context and a particular historical time period, which means while its truth is timeless, its truth is eternal, how we apply that truth to our lives today requires contextualization, requires us remembering that the Bible is written in multiple different genres. Uh, it's not all historical narrative. There, there's poetry, there's apocalyptic literature. It needs to be looked at differently. It's not all the same. We need to remember that as we come to the Word. It requires nuance. It requires, particularly as it relates to that first caveat, humility. As we come to the Word, uh, to remember that we sit underneath it and we are learning together. And, and, and all those things together, I would say, that, that, that's... I would add on with the statement that, yes, we submit ourselves to the authority of this word. Those are things that are important to remember along with that. And the last thing I'd say is, if that statement particularly uh, upsets you or, or you feel like, worried about that, last thing I would say is remember that we all have sources of authority that we submit our lives to. Everyone does. Um, for almost everyone, first of all, that includes themselves. Like, if something doesn't sound right to me, I immediately reject them. I'm just like, no, that can't be right. So we're our own source of authority. But then on top of that, everyone also has other sources of authority that they look to to see what's what. From, from the government to um, you know, your favorite news provider, whoever that is, from, from peer-reviewed studies to whatever experts show up on your TikTok and Facebook accounts. Um, all those things we, we trust and we put our authority in and, and, and we submit to that authority and say, they're telling me what's true and what's right. So all I'm saying is that uh, as your pastor, uh, as the leadership that you've appointed to serve this church, we have chosen to set this book, the, the, the Bible, as our authority. We've said this is the authority we want to submit ourselves to with humility. As students of the Word, we want to submit ourselves to this as our authority. Understanding it, yes, in our current culture, there are things in the Word that actually people, some people find very offensive. Uh, but recognizing that actually... If you study the history of the church, every generation has had something in the Bible that they found offensive. Um, whether it was miracles for a while, that was the thing that was offensive. The deity of Christ, that was the offensive thing. Every point in history has had some part of the Bible that they found offensive. Uh, our job as a church is not to accommodate the word every time the world finds something else that's offended by, but to, I guess, try to learn to hold whatever teaching is currently offensive to the world as unoffensively as possible. That's, that's really the best we can do um, as God's people. And I think a lot of that comes when we can hold things humbly. Which leads us now to this passage that we're looking at today. Uh, my head kind of exploded when I was trying to think like, man, how do I talk about the Word of God as a foundation? There's so many different places in my mind went. So uh, just to, my own caveat here is that we're not going to have a full comprehensive teaching on everything in the Word of God today. But I wanted to focus this here in particular on Psalm 19 as King David unpacks his own uh, response to an experience and understanding of the Word of God in his life. So many places we could go to look at the value of God's Word and why it's at the core of who we are as a church, but I wanted to look at this psalm in particular because what he writes in this passage shows us that David hasn't submitted himself under the authority of God's Word begrudgingly. You notice that? He's not just like, fine, okay, we'll do it your way. He, he seems to really love it. He seems to genuinely love this word. 
Even look at there in verse 10, describing it as like more valuable than much fine gold, sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. Like, like he seems to really like love and admire and, and, and cherish this word. If you, if you know Psalm 1, for instance, as well, also written by David, he talks about um, those who, who submit themselves and delight in the law of the Lord, how it brings uh, blessing and stability to our lives, like a tree planted by streams of water. So he, he seems to like really have loved this word, which isn't to say that our study and pursuit of God and his word is always going to be this euphoric, overwhelming experience. It isn't. I, I know it isn't, but I do think that something that's at the core of who we are and everything that we do as a church ought to be something we truly see as valuable, something that we truly value ourselves, not something that we just tolerate something we do because we think we're supposed to do, but we don't really want to, because, oh, we're Christians, I guess we should care about the Bible. You know, the same way that when I'm telling my daughters they got to put vegetables in their lunch that they're making for the next day, and they're like, okay, fine, I'll put vegetables in, but they don't really want to. I don't think our approach to the Bible should be like that. It should be something we genuinely want to, to immerse ourselves in, to be a part of, that we would increasingly, more and more over time, See the foundation of God's word as something that we, is more of a delight for us than a duty as a church. And in order to help us see that and hopefully move closer to that place of delight over duty that David seems to have found, I want to look at this psalm today in just three simple ways. I want to talk about the necessity of God's word, the beauty of the word, and then lastly we'll look at our response to the word. Just those three things, the, the necessity of, the beauty of, and then our response to the word. So if you closed your Bibles, your Bible app or whatever, could you open it again to that passage, Psalm 19? Follow along with me as we unpack the first of five values at the core of, of who we are and of who we hope to be as a church. Okay, so let's look first of all at the necessity of the word. The necessity of it. And I won't spend a great deal of time on this Point, although we could, except to say that one of the things David shows us about the Word of God in this psalm is why we need it, why it's so necessary that we have this written record of God's Word for us and why it has such value to him, which, which isn't even to touch on the historical reality that we often lose sight of in our modern day, uh, late modern Western context, that, that actually if you're holding a Bible in your hand right now or on your Bible app in a language you can understand, that that's because many women were persecuted, prosecuted, even burned at the stake because they believed that you should be able to read the Bible for yourselves. Like we're not even touching on that incredible reality, which we often lose sight of. But if you look, first of all, at verses 1 through 6, kind of this first section of the psalm, what you clearly see David describing in this beautiful poetic language is the way creation itself reveals God to us. Creation itself shows us who God is in, in, in a sense and what he's like. The Apostle Paul actually picks up on this idea in Romans chapter 1 in saying that we are without excuse as it relates to the, the reality of God because he's made himself plainly known in his creation. So, for example, if you look at verse 1, you see David talking about heavens declaring the glory of God, the, the sky above proclaiming his handiwork. No question, man, like especially on some of these clear nights, if you just stood out and looked up at the sky and the beauty of, of, of the stars, everything that's going on, if you thought about just the, the, the beautiful, vast, complex, still yet to be discovered beauty of the world all around us, 
Or if you've just studied uh, cosmology, you think of like the fine-tuning of the universe that even allows us to exist, for life to exist on our planet, the amount of things that need to happen at such a fine level. It just screams of a designer behind the incredible design. But although, yes, look, David describes speech, creation pours out day and night. It's, it's voice that goes out to the end of the world. Notice what he says there in verse 3, though, where he says, There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. So it's kind of like, well, wait, is it, is it heard or is it not heard? Are they speaking or not? Well, what, what it means is that while creation is undoubtedly communicating day and night, that communication is nonverbal. It's not using words or language. It's, it's speaking in, in, in a metaphorical way. That, that's what he's describing. Creation can communicate the glory of God to us as well as his creative beauty and power and all that he's made. But what it can never do is tell us who the designer is and how he feels about us. So, for example, those of you who uh, have, have kids of your own, if you've spent time around babies, you will know already that one of the most like, horrifically terrible stages of childhood development is that stage between where a child is self-aware enough to know that they want something and when they're able to create words in order to express what that is. This is one of the very worst sections of childhood development possible because it's so incredibly frustrating. I can remember days of just wanting to pull out my hair as my daughters, they'd be strapped in their uh, a high chair or, or in their car seat, red in the face, screaming and crying as they're reaching for this thing that I'm supposed to know what it is across the room or on the other side of the car. And no matter what I bring them, they just continue to reach for that mythical thing, which they clearly want, but I can't figure out what it is. Worst stage of childhood development ever. Uh, uh, the point is, what, what David is saying is that this is exactly what creation is doing though in an infinitely less annoying way, all the time. Creation is, is, is pointing wildly and emphatically all around itself, and it's saying, look how incredible God is. Look, look at how creative He is. Look at how powerful He is. Look at how gracious He is to create all this incredible stuff and then put you in it. Creation is doing that all the time, and yet while creation is pointing day and night, just like a child, it remains unable to speak. It has no literal words or language with, with which to communicate, which leaves us then to our own devices to kind of figure out, if, if we care to figure it out at all, it leaves us to our own devices to figure out, okay, who or what it is that the creation is pointing to. Which, uh, of course, if, if, if you've studied this or looked at this at all, this is how most religious systems at their root were formed. Uh, the, mankind, we have a, a sense of God. We have a sense that there's something other outside of ourselves that's behind all this, and so we're searching for God. And then in that search for who or what it is behind there, maybe one night absentmindedly, we leave out some food in front of our home, and then the next day, the rains that we had been needing for our crops come, and, and our minds start to draw conclusions. And we're like, okay, oh, okay. All right, this God that I can't see, he's, he's pleased when I leave offerings of food and he sends the rain I need. And then we just build out from there. And that's, that's often how most religious systems were, were formed at their root. We're trying to seek God and figure out what he is and what he's like from the natural revelation. And of course, this, this reality is what led to the classic image of a group of blind men feeling an elephant that people oftentimes point to, use to point to the ridiculousness of religion. 
that, that as each different blind man, he grabs a different part of the elephant and then he describes what the elephant is like. Uh, each, each one of them kind of partly right but collectively wrong. This is an image that, that's often used to kind of describe this process and how nobody's really getting it. But you see now this, this shows us, this, this is why the perfect soul-reviving word of God is so necessary. It has such value because as the classic response to that picture goes, right, but what if the elephant speaks? What if the blind men are not left to kind of try to figure out and discern on their own what an elephant is like, but they're told by the elephant himself exactly what he's like? which is the other side, actually. This is the other side of Paul's statement in Romans 1 that we are without excuse as to the fact of God's existence because of how he's revealed himself in his creation. He's made himself plainly known. Because while creation might have the power to condemn us because God's made his existence plainly known, what creation is powerless to do is to save us. It's powerless to communicate who God is and what he's done in order to be in relationship with us. We need the elephant to speak in order to know that. Hence, the written word of God. This leads us then to this next section here of Psalm 19, where David describes now the beauty of the word. He switches from natural revelation to the special revelation where God has revealed himself specifically in his word. So let's look now at the beauty of the word. Beautiful not simply because of the God it reveals, although it certainly is that, but because God has chosen to speak at all. He hasn't left us to try to figure out and understand him from his creation alone. He's spoken. So look now at verses 7 through 9. <clears throat> this is the next section here. See David describing God's word with all these different terms. He talks about the law of God, the precepts of God, commandments, all these different words, which could seem confusing, like, well, what is he talking about? until we realize that each one of those terms are actually drawn from the Pentateuch, the, the first five books of the Bible, which are uh, ascribed to Moses as their author, which then we realize what, what that means is David is trying to collect all of the different aspects of the written word of God together in one picture and, and say, this is what I'm talking about in the word of God, but I'm going to describe it in all of its different types of revelation um, that, that we have included in those first five books, which maybe it's obvious to you, maybe not, but just to for clarity and all to be on the same page. The first five books of the Bible, for, for David at this point in history, that is the Bible for him. Uh, this is what he has. These are the written words of God. And what you see from his collected descriptions is that for David, he sees the word of God in these ways, as perfect, as sure, as clean, pure, true, altogether righteous. Why? Well, First of all, because God is speaking, it's, it's, it's all these things because it reveals God to him, but it also, it's because it has these incredible benefits that he talks about. It revives his soul, he says. It grants him wisdom. It, it makes his heart rejoice and it enlightens his eyes. But why? Why does he see it that way? How, how, how does God's word accomplish those things in David? And I, I suppose the question along with that we might ask is, how can God's word um, bring about those benefits for me. How, how do I reach those by reading God's word? And the answer, the reason David saw it that way, is because of what God's word reveals about himself. Namely, who he is and how he feels about us. That's what we learn as we study God's word, who he is. 
and, and his orientation towards us as he speaks to us. Tim Keller put this so simply in his own work on this passage. He said, without scripture, you can know things about God. You can intuit things about God. You can imagine things about God and get real ideas about God. But the information nature gives you is very mistakable. And we saw that, right, in that kind of brief Passover, thinking about how religions are formed at their root. We, we can think, okay, it's this, but then it isn't that, just by looking at the natural revelation. So he goes on, therefore, Psalm 19 says, if you want to know God and a glorious God and a great and magnificent God, go take a look at the magnificence of nature. But if you want to know that an infinitely high and transcendent God loves you and that you can enter into an intimate personal relationship with him, the only way to find that out is in Scripture. That's where that, that's revealed, but that, that, which is why the word is it can enlighten us and can revive us. We see who God is and we see that his orientation towards us is love because the word is God's very revelation of himself. How so? Because what you hold in your hands when, when you open up a Bible is not, as many modern liberal scholars would want to tell us, it's not the testimony of men about God. The Bible is God's recorded testimony about himself and what he's done, written down by men, so that it might be preserved, that he might continue to speak through it for generations to come. It's a, it's a, it's a very important difference, actually. And there's all kinds of places, actually, this is made clear in the Bible. Um, probably the most well-known or certain notable examples, places like 2 Timothy 3.16. talks about all scriptures being breathed out by God. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter says, no prophecy of scripture comes about from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, Jesus himself in Luke 24, after his resurrection from the dead, he's finding two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus and, and unpacking, opening up the scriptures to them. And we're told, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's the Pentateuch and, and the entire Old Testament. Now, he walks through the whole Old Testament with them, and he interpreted to them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. It is the word of God, and it is the word about God, which means that's the beauty of the word, or at least one of them is that the Bible is actually not a story about you at all. It's not a story about me. It's a story about what God and what he has done, a story that we couldn't discern or understand from natural revelation alone. We needed him to speak. What's beautiful as well is that the God the Bible reveals to us is not, <clears throat> as, as is so often found in kind of seeking to figure out what he's like from natural revelation, he's not a capricious God. He's not a distant God. He's not a vengeful God, as is so often constructed by natural revelation alone, a God that needs to be appeased, a God that, that is unapproachable. And what we see in his revelation is that he is a loving God, a gracious God, a redeeming God who revives our souls and makes glad our hearts. And I know for some that that description of God sounds ridiculous. They would ask me, like, have you read God's word? Have you seen some of those parts? That's not what God's like. Unfortunately, a lot of times, not, not always, but many times, that conclusion about God from his word comes as passages are kind of cherry-picked and pulled out of their context and, and paints a picture of, yes, a God who is vengeful, judgmental, just all about keeping the rules. 
But when you read the Bible and its sweep and its full narrative, what you see is not a vengeful God who's all about rule keeping, but you see a God who in his love created the world and the universe and everything in it perfect and good. And even from the moment we rebelled against him, held out the promise of forgiveness, restoration, and redemption, a promise that he made good in the coming of Jesus, God's promised rescuer. That's who the Bible presents the God of creation as. Beyond that, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians 1, in him, that is in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Which means, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what the God of the Bible is like, you simply need to look at Jesus. He shows us what God is like, actually. Interestingly, the one who John's Gospel describes as the Word made flesh, who dwelt among us. But consider for you and I today, even that physical embodiment of God, the Word made flesh in Jesus, for you and I today, even the words and works of Jesus themselves are known to us, not because Jesus is here walking around physically with us, but because we have the written testimony about him in his Word. Which means God's Word continues to be his beautiful revelation of himself, even to this day. So do you see it now? That, that's why David saw the law of the Lord as perfect, reviving his soul. The testimony of the Lord is, is so sure because it revealed to him what creation never could. It showed him the designer behind the design. And it showed him the posture of this God towards him, his orientation towards him, and that it was one of love. And that was reviving to the soul. And that was enlightening to his eyes. And in light of that beautiful revelation of God's from his word, how should we respond? What, what should our response be to having this written revelation of him now that, again, we hold in our hands, we, we read, we, we don't even often think of the, the, the mystery and the value of the fact that we can just open God's word and, and read it. We'll look at this last section in closing here. For David, as you see, his response to God's special revelation, special revelation of himself and his word was, Adoration and worship. He, he adored God. There, as we see in verse 10, as he speaks of God's self-revelation of himself as worth more than much fine gold, sweeter than the drippings of the honeycomb. And we see his worship there in verse 14 in particular as he offers up every part of himself, both the aspects people can see and hear, the words of his mouth, as well as the parts that only he and God know about, the meditations of his heart. He, he takes every part of himself, and offers it in worship to the God who's revealed himself in his word. His request, basically, in light of God's revelation of himself, is God, in light of who you are and all that you've done for me, may every part of my life be pleasing to you. But that was David's response. What about you? What's your response to this written revelation of God in his word. Where does it lead you to worship? Where does it lead you to adoration of God? And what, what is our response collectively to it as a church? My hope is that just like David, we might respond out of our delight in the God that the Bible reveals to us, revealed fully and perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, who, who showed us, he didn't just say how much God loves us. He showed us. He demonstrated it for us. He showed us what God's orientation towards us was like. Coming and living and dying for our sake. 
That's why the Word of God is at the core of who we are as a church. That's why I see it as, as, as a thing I want us to submit ourselves and be shaped and directed by and the God it reveals to us. Not simply because of the truth it reveals, but because of the God it reveals to us. As it relates to this core value, the way we've chosen to state it, kind of this saying that goes along with it, is we are a people of the Word. We come to it humbly and with expectation, finding truth, light, and the fullness of life itself in the God it reveals. And I think that last part in particular, that, that last part is so key to this foundation for us as a church when it talks about finding truth and light and the fullness of life itself in the God the Word reveals. That's a really important part of this statement, actually, because here's the thing. If you think of Jesus' day and, and the time when, when he lived and ministered on the earth, the Pharisees, the, the religious rulers of Jesus' day, wouldn't they have described themselves the same way? Wouldn't they have called themselves, hey, we are people of the word? And they had good reason to say that, right? They knew the word better than you do. They studied it more than you do. They memorized it more than you do. They were people of the word. And yet, when you look at Jesus' rebuke of the Pharisees in John 5, listen, he says this, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness to me yet you refuse to come to me and have life. Which is why he goes on to tell them, don't think that I will accuse you to my father. There's only one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Which means as, as we identify God's word as being one of the core foundational values by which we identify and we seek to operate as a church, may we never fall victim to the mistaken identity that the religious elites of Jesus did, who, who put their trust in and became experts in the revelation of God's word, but missed the God the revelation was revealing. We want to be a church that doesn't just claim to be people of the word, but looks nothing like the God that the word reveals to us. So may our goal and ultimate endeavor as people of the word ever and always be to look like Jesus, to look like the, the God who this word reveals both to one another as well as to the world that God has called us to be ministers of gospel renewal among. And I believe that will happen as we are founded on and shaped by and directed by God's revelation of himself in his written word. Amen. Amen.